0: episode of the Garden DC podcast, we're joined by Deborah Rossigliano She is a graduate of the Agricultural and Natural Resources College at the University of Maryland. She is the Home Garden Information Center's lead horticulturalist. Her expertise is in all things related to ornamental horticulture and turf. And for those readers of Washington Gardener magazine, You will recognize her from her regular column in the magazine called Ask the Expert. Welcome, Deborah.
1: Yes, thank you, Kathy. This is a pleasure to speak to you. I'm I'm honored that you asked me.
0: (laughs) Well, I'm so happy to have you. And we also call your Ask the Expert column our Q&A column. Uh, kind of like a Mrs. Know-it-all type column. (laughs) (laughs) Um, And I think today we're going to title this episode and theme it Frequently Asked Questions.
1: Right. Well, over my many years in this industry, I have answered thousands of questions, I imagine. So in one shape or form, and it never fails to amaze me how many you know, you would think I would hear so many of the same questions, but that's not necessarily true. You know, there's always something something different that people are asking about. I think that's what I love about this industry is, you know, every day is an opportunity to learn something new.
0: So true. And like if you have that passion for gardening and also that curiosity about just the world in general, it can be so stimulating.
1: It, it can. I mean, this is a, a perfect... Well, it's a really good opportunity to for people that are lifelong learners, because, again, over my journey, I mean, I'm in this industry almost 25 years. All of the training that I've received has been just really invaluable to me. And, you know, again, I I, I certainly am a lifelong learner and I imagine you are too, Kathy.
0: Yeah, I always have to know. And mm-hmm. it's it's such a crutch these days to have Google so you can just ask Google, mm-hmm. but it's not always the answer, right, Deborah? There's always something local on there that might be different for what you're looking up.
1: No, that is that is very true. And that's one of the advantages of the University of Maryland Extension home and garden information center information is that it is based in our region and it comes from research that's done at the university of Maryland. So it's, it's, you know, it's reliable information. It's information you can trust because it's research based and that's really what kind of sets us apart from everybody else.
0: Yeah. Research based is a great, uh, way to go and also just not you're not out there just guessing Mm -hmm. (laughs) your your answers (laughs) are based on scientific research and local research even yeah um and the other thing i was going to say is it's university of maryland based and most of our listeners are in the mid-atlantic but we Mm -hmm. do have some sprinkled throughout the united states and the world Mm -hmm. so Anybody could submit a question to you. They don't have to be a Maryland taxpayer or American citizen. No,
1: that's not necessarily true. Um, Hmm. Through our widget, we only accept questions from Maryland and the District of Columbia. But there is a national ask extension that anybody in the United States has access to um it is run by um it's a, it's actually a national system of all of the um land grant universities and and i am sure many of your readers don't even know what land grant universities are so th- this might be a good time to explain that and that was something that i wanted to touch base on because mm-hmm. um You know, a lot of people aren't even familiar what the University of Maryland Extension is. So it's all all interconnected. So land grant colleges or universities were institutions that were designated actually by state, well, by legislature. Back in 1862, it was the Morrill Act that every state in the union has a land grant university, and that stems from the fact that you know we were very, um, you know, a very agricultural country back then at that time. So they needed research from universities to help the farmers that were producing food, and um, that's exactly you know, what, what happened. So every state and union, I mean, very, very, you know, incredibly, you know, Penn State, Cornell, Virginia Tech, University of Maryland, University of Connecticut, um, they're all land-grant universities. We actually do get some federal grant funds that comes into each state, and that helps to ex- like um, establish agricultural experiment stations. And that's where a lot of the research is conducted. So really, I mean, this research is conducted in every state of the union, but then there's the issue, well, how does all of this research get into the community for the people that really need to, you know, utilize this research? So that's how the extension service. Many people might be familiar with the cooperative extension service. That's how that came about, was that extension agents actually went out into the community to to help farmers and um, anybody who actually uh, made their living in in agriculture, greenhouse, you know, growing crops, so fast forward to the Home and Garden Information Center, we're kind of an offset of the University of Maryland Extension. It was created actually back in 1990 when you know, Maryland started to get a little bit more suburban and they wanted to kind of free up the commercial extension agents to be utilized by folks that actually do make their living in agriculture because they were getting so many homeowner questions and it was taking time away, you know, from from folks again that need this information for commercial endeavors. So the Home and Garden Information Center was created. We service the whole entire state of Maryland and we answer pretty much home order questions but again our answers are research based and comes from uni- you know university of maryland research or other cooperative extension universities around the country so this is this is really a good tip for people when they're just out there on the internet googling information about their plants or you know anything related to horticulture is to put in whatever you are researching and then type in cooperative extension because you are going to pretty much weed out all the random information maybe from folks that you know I don't want to say they don't know what they're talking about but I mean there's a, there's a chance that that might be true as we all know and you're going to be looking at other information from other universities and colleges that um You know, it's it's good information. It's, you know, all of these universities and colleges, we don't have any agenda, nothing to sell people. So that that eliminates a lot of, you know, people that are out there just trying to sell things to people on the Internet. So that's totally eliminated. And you are getting, again, all research research based information.
0: That's a great tip to how to do your Google searches. And another thing Mm -hmm. is to uh, look for .edu or to look for that extension service agent in the byline, maybe, of the article or the white sheet or white paper that they're looking at.
1: Yes, yes. Another excellent tip for sure.
0: Related to that, how do the Master Gardeners work with Cooperative Extension?
1: Well, I mean, the Master Gardeners are, are a group of volunteers that are actually trained by University of Maryland field faculty and also specialists at HGIC. And we work together with the Master Gardeners. So HGIC and the Master Gardeners support each other. Um, One example would be through our website, which is extension.umd.edu. Forward slash HGIC. That is a resource for Master Gardeners who are either studying something on their own or maybe they're at a plant clinic and they want to find some information about a certain topic. They can just use their cell phones and um, go right to our website. And um, there's an incredible amount of information on that website. So it's 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 one tool in their toolbox. You know, we mm-hmm. we we do try to support each other. We're there for each other. The the master gardeners are kind of the boots on the ground. You know, they're out in the out with the public. HGIC does not have a public you know facing format. It used to be a bank of telephones when I first started at Home and Garden in 1997 we had eight telephone stations and in the growing season, those phones rang off the hook, nonstop, literally from eight to one. I am not kidding. I mean, we would have people also waiting on hold to speak to us. Mm -hmm. Very, very busy. I really got thrown into the industry, you know, starting way back then you know because we didn't have the internet we didn't have you know there was no information right at our fingertips although we had an awesome uh library of excellent references but you know you you had to really know those references really well because you're talking on the phone to somebody so you know of course we all had our set of favorite references of where we would look to go for questions and of course we would, we would ask each other, each other too. So if someone wasn't on the phone, you know, we'd say, hey, what, you know, what do you think about this? What do you think this could be? So it was a very busy place to work at that time. But uh, again, oh my gosh, what an opportunity to work with folks that have the same interests, you know, in plants, in nature, the environment. And I mean, every, again, every day was a learning experience. And through all of my years at HGIC, you know, continuing education was is always a priority, even to this day, because, you know, we, we take pride that we stay on top of the issues because they change all the time. Every season is a different season that brings, you know, you, you name it. We never know what, you know, each season is mm-hmm. going to bring. They're all different.
0: Yeah, the weather changes, the the insect pressures and pest changes, I can imagine, each season. So I was going to revisit what you said about uh, it being an all-call center, and now it's moved to Mm all-email. So I would imagine the big difference now, besides that you have a little time to research and reply to that email, is that you get digital images, Um, so it used to be that I guess people would just describe it has a green leaf with red dots. How would they even say that over the phone?
1: Yes, Kathy, you bring up an excellent point. It was pretty much descriptions that we had to pretty much rely on, although, you know, for many years we did accept, you know, plant samples. You know, we no longer do that because we do have you know, the resource now that people can send us digital photos and that's extremely helpful. In fact, on our website there are instructions on how to send the best photos possible to us because sometimes we get some interesting photos too. So um we we you know we, we, we do get back to people and say oh you know we can't really see you know it's too blurry. Can you resend the photo? So we try to kind of eliminate having to go back and forth like that but um yeah definitely much much easier now being able to see pictures of things because you know you notice things say mm-hmm. for instance a plant a shrub is doing poorly and you're looking at the image in there, all of a sudden there's the downspout that lets out right at the base of that shrub. I mean, when you're on the phone with somebody, they're not gonna tell you that because they they don't think that's important. (laughs) So it it definitely helps.
0: I can imagine there's lots of clues in those photos. Yeah,
1: and I have to say, the caliber of questions now that we receive through e-extension are much more difficult because people are so much more knowledgeable because you know it's usually they come to us after they've exhausted their searches on the internet and they still can't find the answer to their problem so um, yeah the the, um, the the questions certainly have gotten a little bit more difficult but we you know we like challenges and you know we we do, well, at one time, you know, we're sending out surveys to see how satisfied folks were with their answers and definitely, you know, definitely received many, many positive comments in the quality of the answer. You know, thank you for educating me about this. Or, you know, in many cases we'll even help to save folks you know, money, you know, maybe they don't need to have a, a tree expert come and look at something. You know, we told them what it was and what to do, mm-hmm. or don't worry about it. So, you know, there's lots of examples like that. And also we follow IPM principles. I guess, you know, maybe a lot of folks don't know what IPM is, but again, that's a scientific-based way of monitoring for and and managing you know, pests in the least harmful way to insects in general, because, you know, it's not good to just spray for everything, because we need to really protect those important pollinator and beneficial insects. So we also educate people about things like that. You know, it used to be they just would run to the hardware store to get a spray, to spray the first thing that, we, you know, they can find, and we will say, no, you don't have to spray for this. This is not a serious pest. Or a lot of times they will see the damage and they will, or they'll, they'll see a plant damage. Say for instance, like um, a perennial has chewed leaves and there's like a little innocent insect sitting there. You know, they'll blame that insect. Oh, he's been eating my, my, my plants. And we'll say no, you know, the, the damage has probably come, and or the critter that did the damage has come and gone. He, that's just an innocent bystander. Don't spray, you know, so <laughs> things like that. So we, you know, do again offer sustainable suggestions, ones that are best for the environment, and you know, because it's a it's a fine line, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, we don't have to have that perfect lawn anymore. You know, we we really need to protect this beautiful natural resource that was given to us. And, and, you know, we might have to learn to accept maybe a certain amount of damage on things or to start doing things differently. And maybe, you know, from the beginning, learn good practices. Again, from the start, you know, one of the most basic things is select the correct plant for that site. You know, look for disease-resistant, insect-resistant cultivars of plants, you know, such as like um, with um, dogwood trees, you know, you want to plant powdery mildew resistant dogwoods. Um, That's one example, so. Mm -hmm. um,
0: Yeah, and that's a great point that, you know, right plant, right place. Of course that principle and i did want to jump in for for those not familiar with ipm it's integrated pest management and way back on episode eight of the garden dc podcast we interviewed Heather in dash hmm. about ipm best practices and how to diagnose and treat issues in your garden so if you really want to take a deep dive into that check out that episode and deborah i want to jump us into some of those frequently asked questions that you get and maybe even some of those off the wall once in a lifetime type questions that you get that you're like what
1: oh goodness <laughs> oh I'll have to yeah. think oh you you. well we'll start with <laughs> let's see let's start with the most obvious okay mm-hmm. that is cicadas oh yes <laughs> we let's talk cicadas. oh my gosh we knew that this was the year of the cicada I mean we started getting cicada questions like two seasons even before we were expecting them you know people well i know this is maybe is a little amusing you know people planning outdoor weddings you know when when can i plan my plan my wedding in the spring summer of 2021 i don't want to be attacked by cicadas and so that that can be uh that's kind of amusing i guess um we we, and, and this might have even been in the past because I've been around for the the previous cicada invasion of two thousand and four. Mm-hmm. I can remember people being on two camps either either they love them or they're terrified of them. I and mean, I remember taking a call one time from a woman who was so concerned because since the last time the the um, periodical cicada. Um immersion came she had had a driveway put down, so she was asking us if she should tear up her driveway so <laughs> and we're like, How can you ask that she was worried you know that the cicadas weren't going to be able to emerge, so I mean talk about someone who loved the cicadas honestly that <laughs> that was a while ago, so I don't remember what we told her, but I'm sure we probably told her no i I think It's okay. You don't have to remove your driveway. (laughs) Um,
0: That would be a big sacrifice, but yeah, yeah, if you really love them and want to let them loose.
1: (laughs) That is true. That is true. And then you would have people on the phone that said, well, we're not leaving our house for six weeks. We're buying groceries for six weeks. (laughs) We are just not going to go outside. So again, it's just interesting how people you know, react to certain things. And, you know, we definitely try to talk, or we did, even through answering our questions via, um, you know, email, we will try to say, please, accept, you know, insects, it's okay. You know, these are not, (laughs) they're part of our natural environment, just, Mm -hmm. just appreciate them. So, um, you know, we, we, we really do with, in every answer, also try to educate people. Um, That's part of our mission.
0: So occurring right now are the fall armyworms or the the webs that you see all up in the tree limbs at the tips. Um, Are are you seeing a much bigger amount this year or a lot more questions about them?
1: Okay, Kathy, those are two different things. Okay. Ah, Okay. What you're talking about is actually fall webworm, Mm -hmm. and that's one of those yearly occurrences. Um, There's actually two generations of those. There's a smaller generation earlier in the summer, but the fall generation is the large generation. And yes, that's certainly an insect that people get excited about because you're right. I mean, driving along the highway or any road, you know, they're so numerous and some years they're worse than others, but that's an insect that we will say to people, you know, don't, don't be concerned. You don't have to treat for them. They're not going to kill the trees. Um, Fall army worm is a a surprise, I guess. We always have a few surprises during the season. You know, obviously we knew about the cicadas. And I think just about every topic on the cicadas was covered very thoroughly. But fall army worm came upon us as a surprise. Um, What usually happens is because, you know, at the extension service, there's also you know, a, a commercial extension agent who who helps, like, the, the folks in the landscape industry, turf industry, greenhouse industry. And they also receive emails from the professionals with, with um, you know, things that they're seeing out in the landscape. So all of a sudden, they started getting these emails about folks their lawns were being totally eaten up within a matter of a few days. They went from a beautiful green lawn to a totally brown lawn. Then all of a sudden the questions from homeowners started coming into the Home and Guard Information Center site with the same thing. And then because there's also a a, a listserv of entomologists from kind of all over the U.S., and they were saying the same thing about these army worms. So the fall armyworm is really a subtropical moss. It's a moss that mm-hmm. is pretty prevalent in the southern states, but they're pretty strong flyers. So it could be that they just flew here on their own or they might have caught you know during a storm on the wind we're kind of blown up into this area and the moth lays eggs in the grass also in uh, farmers fields they will attack some crops so there's also been some farm farmers chiming in about how their fields are or getting damaged by these army worms so people will go out and look in their at their lawns and there'll be all these caterpillars on their lawn just chomping away so you know, these, these kind of things get us excited, you know?
0: <laughs> <laughs> well, on the next topic, a big topic that I know you all get lots of questions are besides insect damage is disease. And that's mm. probably the number one thing that people are, have exhausted all the other um, places to look or ask, and then turn to you all to say, what is damaging my, tree, my shrub, so what are the most common ones?
1: Well, okay, getting, just getting back to insects for a minute, I have to say my thought is is that this was the year of the insects. Um, The plant pathologist, Dr. Dave Clement, that, you know, that works at Home and Garden, Mm -hmm. he, you know, he doesn't like when the insects kind of outweigh the, the plant diseases, but I think this year that was the case. I have to say probably the most asked about disease this summer was powdery mildew. Beginning on dogwoods, hmm. you know, there's also powdery mildew that that will affect crepe myrtles. Right now you start to see it on peonies. Uh, and again, I would say that out of all of those plants, the powdery mildew on the dogwood is the most serious on well, it's pretty serious on crepe myrtles too, but I say I'd say the most serious on dogwood because it hits dogwoods very early in the season. Typically, powdery mildew is more of a late season disease, but again, on dogwoods, it hits them early, so they don't have a lot of time to generate a lot of you know carbohydrates through their leaves because they're covered by this white coating and. On a year-to-year basis, if dogwoods get hit with this, you know, it it can definitely weaken them. You know, we, back again when I started, discula anthracnose was the big disease on dogwoods. Honestly, we don't really see that anymore. You know, not very often at all. Again, powdery mildew, and I want to say for both dogwoods and crepe myrtles, before again, before that's the key word. Before you go to the nursery to plant either a dogwood or a crepe myrtle, you need to do your research and find out what cultivars or varieties are powdery mildew resistant, because that that's important for both of these tree species. And again, if you don't if you don't know, you can just fire a question off to, to Home and Garden through our. Um, website. be very happy to answer a question like that for, for folks. Exactly. Peonies, you know, they get rather, you know, powdery mildew, makes them kind of unsightly and kind of raggedy, but, you know, they've had their leaves long enough to serve their purpose, and it's almost time to kind of prune those back anyway. So that would be, you know, a condition where we would say, oh, you don't have to worry so much about that. And uh, getting back to dogwoods, I mean, they have other leaf spot issues too. Like early in the season, they'll get like El Sinoe leaf spot. Um, And while that can make the leaves somewhat unsightly, it's not really that that serious. Mm -hmm. And it's funny, you know, diseases are also worse one year compared to the next. Like last season of 2020, Cherry trees really got hit with um, cherry shot hole disease. So the year before this, that was one of the questions of the year was cherry shot hole disease, which um, most people think that's an insect because what happens is the fungus, you know, um, infects the leaves and then eventually, in the in the infected tissue, drops out of those, uh, you know, out of the leaf structure and there's just these little tiny perfectly round holes that are left so it looks like an insect kind of was feeding on the leaves but again those that's um either fungal or can be bacterial there's a few kinds of causes of um of cherry shot hole Um, and it causes early season defoliation of cherry trees. I mean, again, that's not something we would routinely recommend somebody spray for. You know, exception would be maybe if it was a prized cherry tree or, you know, a cherry tree in an arboretum somewhere or, you know, public display garden. But, um, you know, in the home landscape, managing that type of a disease would be well first of all costly because you would have to have an arborist in to spray and you know it takes multiple multiple um, treatments with a fungicide not tremendously easy
0: Mm -hmm. and i was going to say it's good to hear that a lot of the issues it sounds like are more unsightly than deadly Mm
1: -hmm. Mm -hmm. and
0: um one medical principle i remember hearing uh that applies to humans, of course, could probably apply to plants as well, is just wait two or three weeks and it'll heal. (laughs) That's
1: very true. Yeah,
0: there's a lot of things that people panic about and like will run to emergency room or dermatologist Mm -hmm. or their, um, you know, regular family doctor and that if they just had waited two weeks, it would have been cleared up on its own.
1: Yes, that is very true, and I, I and I will go back to insects. With that point, we get so many people call in the kind of late spring. Well, maybe mid spring, early summer, because of all of the um, the mining bees in lawns, and you know they panic because oh my gosh, there's so many bees flying around. And Kathy, what you just mentioned—that's our words of wisdom just wait. They are beneficial. They're pollinators. They will go away. Leave them alone. If you leave them alone, you know, they're not going to bother, okay. you know, they're not really very um, aggressive, you know, so so that And works. that
0: sounds, I was going to say, that sounds a lot like our periodical cicadas yeah. that we were talking about at <laughs> the beginning, is just wait. Of course, this year was a little bit longer and a little bit more delayed than they thought because it was a cool start their process and they hung out around a few more weeks than they were supposed to but now they're a, a distant memory and that's another 17 years right yes
1: that is that is true that is true They 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 came they conquered and they're gone for another <laughs> 17 years
0: and now we have the the annual cicadas who are seem seeming like they're in pretty big numbers this year in the late summer i'm hearing them all over the place
1: mm-hmm, mm-hmm.
0: I love their song as compared to the piercing song of the periodical cicadas. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Again, this conversation is, is heavy on the insects, but I would be remiss if I didn't mention the spotted lantern fly. Oh yes. That is, the, yeah. you know, well for us, maybe a new invasive pest, certainly not for the folks in Pennsylvania. They've been dealing with it for a while, but um They're pretty much here in in Maryland for sure, definitely for sure. In fact, you know, we have a page on our website dedicated to spotter, land, and fly, and Cornell University has an excellent map showing the counties of, well, I think it's pretty much the mid-Atlantic states, maybe a little bit in Ohio, I think a county in Ohio, but where the um, lanternfly is is confirmed or has been spotted. Lanternfly is here in Maryland. That is an insect that the Maryland Department of Agriculture has been keeping tabs on. So if you should see a spotted lanternfly, you can either contact us at at Home and Garden or you can go directly onto the, the Maryland Department of Agriculture website, Put spotted lanternfly in the search box, and um, their information will will come up. So that's definitely on the horizon. You know, maybe it'll go the way of the brown marmorated stink bug because you know back in 2010. Oh my gosh, they were. I don't know. Do you remember them, Kathy? Those.
0: <laughs> oh yeah, that's all we could talk about, and that was you know put the fear in the heart of every gardener in the area because they were piercing like the cherry tomatoes. They were piercing individual ears of corn. They were piercing fruit trees, the fruit on the fruit trees Mm -hmm. and just like sucking them out. And, you know, for a year or two, it just seemed like, you know, all was lost for a lot of these crops and especially a home gardener. You only had one tomato plant maybe, or a couple tomato plants. So that was, it was a lot.
1: Yes, Kathy, you remember them well, (laughs) but, but, You know, now I don't think we got one question on brown marmorated stink bug this season. So, again, insect populations ebb and flow, predators, you know, become accustomed to feeding on them. In fact, I read an article yesterday, it was actually in a turf magazine about spotted lanternfly, but it had mentioned some... um, Bird species that actually feed on them. I believe it was blue jays, and I can't remember the other birds. But, all, you know, again, also some insects, spiders, and um, you know, your typical other kind of predators that feed on things. So, that would that would be nice. That would certainly be nice mm-hmm. if um, the spotted lanternfly pretty much goes away. But, you know, there's there's always something on the horizon,
0: mm-hmm. you know,
1: and that's another thing that we do at Home and Garden is is keep a handle on things that might not necessarily be here in Maryland yet, but people should look out for. Like, one example is box tree moths. They pretty much, def, you know, devastate boxwoods. I mean, they just feed on their leaves. till you know, (laughs) there's pretty much nothing left. I do believe Mm -hmm. that they were sighted in New York, if I'm not mistaken. I mean, there are few sightings of them, but again, they're kind of on the horizon.
0: Yeah, that's, uh, I've been reading about them and yeah, they're a little bit scary. Yeah. I mean, (laughs)
1: we're Mm -hmm. dealing with that. Mm
0: So moving on back to, you talked about cherry trees and the shot hole disease. Mm-hmm. So a lot of us have, especially in the inner suburbs around Washington, D.C. and in Baltimore and, and other urban areas, we have big old oak trees that we're trying to hang on to. But it seems like they're experiencing a lot more disease and pest issues lately. Is Is that what
1: you're hearing about? Oh, gosh, yes, yes. And that has actually been going on for a few years now. That is a pretty, pretty big issue. It's one of these, there's not just one pat answer. You know, they've certainly, the Extension Service has been looking into this. And oak trees actually can handle a lot of, I'm just going to call it general abuse. You know, they're not wimpy trees, but You know, they're facing a lot of issues, including, you know, changes in our climate. You know, all of these extreme weather events, temperatures, rain, drought, and that, you know, predisposes trees to other problems and certainly um, insects like borers, which are very serious. Bacterial leaf scorch is something else that affects oak trees. And I mean, there's no, no cure for that. So many people jump to the conclusion that their trees have oak wilt. And honestly, there's in Maryland, we, we don't really see oak wilt, you know, maybe there's an isolated area way out in Western Maryland, but very small, very small. The plant pathologists at the university, you know, they keep tabs on issues like this. They tried to put together, you know, all of the reasons why these oaks are dying. And again, again, it's just many issues. A lot of them have actually come to the end of their, their life cycle. You know, oak trees planted in suburban areas, and this is true for any tree, don't have as long a lifespan. As a tree out in a natural area, so you're not going to get all these hundred hundred-year oaks that you see on a plantation or you know some estate somewhere. It's just not going to happen. But um, certainly, we don't discourage people from planting oak trees because they are it's you know very important native plant, and if they live for 50 or 100 years that's still an awful long time and that's still an awful long time to support wildlife. I mean oak oak trees are the number one species that support all different types of, you know, wildlife and insects and caterpillars and you name it. And you know, as we know Doug Tallamy is is well known for his support of oak trees. And, uh, you know, we we continue to to say that there are certainly, you know, a species that should be continued to be planted. And again, I see so many trees that are planted incorrectly. So when you're planting a tree, you need to plant that tree properly from the get go. Mm -hmm. that will eliminate a lot of, as we call them in the industry, you know, abiotic problems, but trees planted too deeply with too much mulch. I mean, they just suffer a long decline in death. So if you want to give a tree a good start right from the beginning, plant them right, you know, investigate. Again, you can find that information on our website, know, how to properly plant a tree and, um, you know, just take the time and do it. And and honestly, don't assume if your tree is planted by someone in the industry, you know, that, that it's being planted correctly because I see a lot of those trees being planted too deeply or they're still wrapped in their burlap, which, you know, in this day and age isn't usually real burlap it probably has some kind of plastic woven in there or tree cages Mm -hmm. no they have to be that has to be peeled back and I mean I know I do know that it takes a lot longer to properly plant a tree but when you're investing money in landscape plants because you know trees are expensive take the time and research how it is going to be planted ask the person questions that's my advice. <laughs>
0: <laughs> well, thanks for that, Deborah. And I was gonna say that it's you know, it's very heartbreaking to see all the oaks, especially you know in my area that are declining so rapidly. and I have some huge old hundred year old oaks on my own tiny property that are declining fast. Mm-hmm. So yeah, it's it's heartbreaking all around, but definitely try to plant a new one um, for everyone that you do lose. Um, so at least in the future you know there will be some old growth trees for the for the next generations mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. so getting back to more frequently asked questions I know you get a lot of questions about lawns and lawn care and fall is kind of that lawn renewal season do you want to talk a little bit about um, frequently asked lawn questions aside from that army worms are, are decimating them right now. <laughs>
1: oh, right, right. Well, even even that army worm situation, really, the only thing folks can do right now is lawn renovation mm-hmm. um, because they've already come and gone and done the damage. So, um, unless the big question mark with those is whether there's a second generation or, or not, we don't even know. That's an unknown. But you know, you wouldn't even treat your lawn now with with anything if you if you have had that problem. But right. Getting back to lawns, actually, we have a strong feeling that, you know, a lot of lawns can be reduced or replaced, especially in certain situations. Again, over the years, we have answered so many questions, you know, why? Why? Why doesn't my grass grow in the shade? What can I do? I have all these trees in my yard and my grass doesn't grow. Well, you know, grass is a prairie plant. It needs to be planted in full sun or at least six hours of sunlight. So, you know, it's really time to start replacing, you know, lawns in areas where it doesn't grow well. That's, again, Uh, one of my number one recommendations as far as turf. But you're right. I mean, this is the time of year that lawns have certainly taken a beating over the summer. You know, we've had another very hot summer. I mean, we did have a reasonable amount of rain this season, Mm -hmm. but we've had a lot of humidity. I see a lot of brown patch, you know, brown patch is almost like the Achilles heel of tall fescue. You know, tall fescue is the grass species recommended for our area, but it does get brown patch. So a lot of, a lot of lawns are in need of repair. Really, I mean, if you really want to do it right, is you should start with a soil test. In fact, you know, the University of Maryland does not have a soil testing lab anymore, but on our website, we have a list of labs that we've been referring people to for many years now. But that's really the right way to begin because it's a good aid to know what the pH of your soil is. You know, grass likes a more neutral, you know, right there kind of in the middle between about 6 and 6.8 if the soil is too acidic it's not going to grow well you're going to to start having you know weeds come in because actually the best defense against weeds is a thick healthy lawn you know planted with tall fescue this is a good time to fertilize your lawn i know people are wanting to do the right thing by the Chesapeake Bay and you know not put down fertilizer but honestly if you're going to grow grass grass is a very hungry crop i mean we are actually growing a crop you know so it needs to be tended to and if, if fertilizer is put down at the right time the right amount it's going to be taken up by the grass and especially at this time of year the grass roots so, this is a good time to put down lawn fertilizer. And if you have a pretty healthy lawn to begin with, if you put it down in the fall, and this is a good time right now because the temperatures are you know falling. it's it's cooler. It, it can last, you know, you can maybe get away with only putting down one application a year of fertilizer. But you know it depends on the situation. If you have a newly seeded lawn, If your lawn is looking kind of thin, um, you might you you know you might want to put down another two applications in the fall, one now and then one around Halloween. It's very important. You know, we do have a fertilizer law in Maryland, and all lawn fertilizer has to be put down on lawns by November fifteenth is the cutoff date. So people need to keep that in mind. So there are again um, you know rules and regulations to also help protect the bay lawn fertilizer now has zero phosphorus so that helps to reduce the amount of phosphorus that goes into our waterways because that does cause problems and pretty much anywhere you go to buy lawn fertilizer all of the maintenance lawn fertilizers are zero the middle number the middle number is phosphorus would be zero. Again, if you kind of ignore your lawn and don't do anything to it, it's going to end up, you know, getting very weedy and, you know, that might prompt certain people to want to put more things on their lawn. So if you are going to grow a lawn, you know, you, you really need to do the right things and all right, we're almost at the end of the uh, mowing season, but you want to mow your lawn to, to about three or four inches. You don't want to scalp your lawn. That's not a good practice. Scalping a lawn is an invitation for crabgrass to move in and other weeds. You don't really have to irrigate, except if you, again, if you have a young lawn, if your lawn is You know, kind of like less than two years old, you you, you know, you would have wanted to water it this season, but mature lawns don't really need to be watered. In fact, tall fescue is able to go dormant in the summer. Considering how much warmer our summers are, and the fact that it's not easy to grow nice grass in Maryland. We are located in what is called the transition zone meaning that it's not easy to grow cool season grasses like fescue or Kentucky bluegrass. And the warm season grasses like zoysia don't they, they can't be green or they shouldn't be green all year round because the, the, the weather conditions, we and, and also between also the humidity too, between the heat and the humidity, people shouldn't expect their lawns to be bright green all year round. It's okay. It's okay. No, um,
0: yeah. Unless you have AstroTurf or dye. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, it's definitely a mixed blessing being in the mid Atlantic because you do have those two uh, growing zones, the cool and, and warm season mm-hmm. grasses converging. So we could probably do a separate episode at some point, all about lawn and, and turf grass questions. Oh yeah. Oh, in yeah. Our f- in our few minutes left together, I do want to ask um, for some fall garden prep and the type of questions you get around this autumn season.
1: That would be, you know, maybe mostly vegetable gardening. You know, what can still be planted, like garlic, or what? What should I do with my vegetable garden for the winter? You know, we we try to encourage certainly covering the soil. You don't want any bare soil exposed. So either with a cover crop. Again, we have information on our website that goes into detail about cover crops. If you don't want to sow a cover crop, at least cover your soil with some shredded leaves. You know, shredded leaves are wonderful. Which leads me to another thought. I think people shouldn't be so... stressed out about having to remove all of the leaves in their yard. You know, there's, you know, research is showing that so many beneficial, so many pollinators, that's where they overwinter is in the leaf litter. So it's okay to leave some leaf litter in your ornamental beds. I mean, first of all, again, it's a nice cover for the soil and it helps to um, you know, preserve some of our beneficials and, and pollinators. Also, you know, to hold back on pruning back your perennials, you know, if you've planted a pollinator garden or a butterfly garden, don't feel that you need to prune everything back. Everything doesn't have to be neat and tidy for the winter. Again, that's a source of, you know, of of nesting for, you know, certain bee species, native bee species that we want to preserve. You know, it's just not honeybees that are under, you know, that we're concerned about their numbers dwindling. You know, we have a pretty large amount of native bees in Maryland. We need to be concerned about them. So keep those stalks up for the winter. And when you prune them back in the spring, you know, and it's early spring, you might not just want to throw them in the trash or in the compost pile. Just kind of pile them somewhere in your yard, somewhere, you know, later in the spring, and um, to make sure that if anything was nesting in there, they're not in there anymore. That's <laughs> certainly a lot better than those little bee hotels that people have been, you know, they're cute. You know, it's a cute garden ornament, but something like that, again, takes management, you know, they have to be cleaned out every year because, you know, diseases can affect any of mm-hmm. the bees nesting in there, so just do it naturally. <laughs> yeah. yeah,
0: and I, I do think, we, A, good good news for us garden procrastinators, or, or busy people, as I'll call ourselves,
1: mm-hmm. <laughs> so mm-hmm. we
0: can do all of that in the late winter, early spring, and then just set up a little a pile to the side for the last of the pollinators to emerge Mm -hmm. and then yeah the insect hotels are really cute but i always wonder how the insects know (laughs) that it's for them (laughs) you put a little sign on there but they can't read that um so in our last minute together deborah uh, people can ask questions through Washington Gardener magazine, mm-hmm. um, but they can also ask questions through the extension website. Mm-hmm. Is there any other way people can reach you if they want to follow up on any questions they might have?
1: Well, um, you know, I can be they can they can send a question through ask, ask extension. Again, the website is extension. Dot edu slash h g i c and just scroll down the home page a little bit until you see connect with us and you'll see the um where you need to click to ask your question
0: terrific well thank you so much deborah this has been really great information and we covered a lot of territory <laughs> from, yes, <we> did. <laughs> from, from oak trees to cicadas to turf grass and I want to just direct Washington Gardener readers to our next Ask the Expert column and to check you out online.
1: And thank you so much, Deborah. Oh, you're welcome. It's been a pleasure, Kathy. Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch and dinner? Check. Planning
0: for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. and Liriope muscari are also known as lily turf or monkey grass. They are tough, low-maintenance plants that are commonly used for an evergreen ground cover. They are hardy from USDA zones 4 through 10 and native to Asia. Both kinds of Liriope are grass-like perennials that grow to about a foot tall. There are solid-colored and variegated foliage versions of both species available. In late summer, they send up pretty spikes of purple or white flowers, which are sometimes followed by dark berries in the fall. Liriope grows well in many types of soil and can thrive in full sun to part shade. They do not like sitting in wet ground for long periods of time and are drought tolerant once established. They do not need fertilizing. The only maintenance liriope needs are to shear them back in late winter or early spring to cut off the last season's fading foliage and make way for fresh leaf growth. The essential thing to know about the two species is that liriope spicata is a spreading plant, while liriope muscari is a clumping one. Both have their uses from holding in a slope to covering exposed soils to edging a garden bed, but, caution should be exercised before planting Liriope spicata, as it can be next to impossible to remove it in future years. Thus, Liriope picata is considered invasive in some areas. You can dig and divide either species every few years if you wish to spread the plants to other areas of your landscape. What's new in the garden this week? Well, we got a little taste of fall, but summer is still very much here. And in the garden, it's the debate between pulling the summer annuals and putting in the cool season ones in the flower beds and containers, and the same thing is happening over in the vegetable plot. So we've decided to pull the cucumbers and put in some cool season seeds of cilantro, arugula, radish, lettuce, and other cool season crops. Meanwhile, back in my own home garden, I'm procrastinating and I'm still enjoying the fuchsia, bacopa, impatiens, petunias, as long as I can. And then I'll finally work in some of the mums and snapdragons and other cool season flowers. Locally in the greater Washington, D.C. area, in mid-Atlantic, there's a few events I wanted to call your attention to that are coming up in a few weeks. Uh, one of them is at Historic London Town outside of annapolis and this is their annual plant sale so they have a little preview on friday september the 24th for members and volunteers only from 12 to 4 and then general admission saturday september 25th from 9 to 2 the plant sale is a fundraiser for london town historic garden so check that out the next day sunday september 26th at the Washington National Cathedral, the All Hallows Guild is holding their annual garden day from 1 to 4 p.m. That should be a, a fun event and beautiful gardens to visit there. And on that same date in Northern Virginia at the Glen Carlin Library, uh, there is a Community Garden Autumn Fest and that goes from 10 a.m. to 3 p.m. that day. That includes some mini workshops on gardening from climate conscious gardening to colonial gardens to how to sharpen and care for your garden tools. And of course, there'll be a little bit of um, things for sale and other events. Um, They'll have native plants from Hill House Nursery, handcrafted jewelry, and that sort of thing on sale. So happy gardening! You can find Washington Gardener online at washingtongardener.com, on Twitter at WDC Gardner, on Instagram at WDC Gardener, and on Facebook.com at Washington Gardener Magazine.